Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church on this fourth Sunday in Advent. Special welcome to those who are joining us, Crossroads, Neo One, and uh, Highland Park. Crossroads was offline last week. We did the lessons and carols over there, big, big event, uh, but everybody's back on board today. And I want to start by uh, taking us back 238 years ago on December 25th, 1776, When General George Washington of the American Revolutionary Forces crossed the Delaware River to launch a surprise attack uh, in Trenton, New Jersey against the Hessian forces, the Germans that had been uh, paid uh, to fight for the British against the Americans. And uh, there's this famous painting that no doubt you've seen, Washington in profile crossing the Delaware River. there's only one problem. It uh, didn't, didn't look like this. Um, the painting was painted 40 years after the event by a German who had never been to the United States. Um, and it was the wrong kind of boat. Uh, the flag shown there was not actually yet made. Uh, Washington was uh, far younger than he is portrayed in this picture. And almost certainly he would not have been standing up in a boat. So... Um, There's some problems with our picture of this event. Similarly, we have some problems with another iconic image, and that is the painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper. And this is uh, another image that is sort of emblazoned in many people's minds. And it's it's a pivotal event. The Last Supper is when Jesus changes the Passover celebration that the Jews have been celebrating for hundreds, literally over a thousand years, and changes it into Holy Communion. And he does this, in essence, by making it obvious that it had always been about him, right? That he was the Passover lamb, and that this celebration that, that, uh, that, that the Jews had had in place was there in place by God, to reinforce two big ideas for the Jews. One, that sin is a capital offense, and when we sin, we deserve to die. And two, that substitute deaths are allowed. So when Jesus comes along, he's going to make it clear that he was the Passover lamb, right? Because the Jews would take, at this Passover celebration, the Jews would take an unblemished male lamb. Perfect. They would kill it. They would use the blood to paint over the doorpost. So when the angel of death appeared, he would pass over that house knowing that blood had already been shed so that guilty people could go free. So Jesus is going to come as the Passover lamb. Perfect male who's going to live, do everything exactly right, and then he is going to die a substitutionary death, and his blood is going to be used so that, that our sin is no longer held against us. So it's a pivotal event that happens at this uh, Last Supper. But this painting is not painted 40 years after the event. It's painted 1,400 years after the event. And uh, just all kinds of things wrong with it, uh, starting with uh, the food, uh, the, the fact that there's a table. It shows that in the background you, you could see that there's a blue sky. It, it was happened at night. And then there's, then there's this, which I completely fell for. Um, years ago, I was using this painting by Da Vinci to teach on the sacraments, and I had it up, and, and a student raised their hand and said, well, what, what was Jesus saying at the, at the moment that this picture was taken? And I go, well, you get that it's not a picture, right? Uh, it's a painting. 
And uh, they go, but what was Jesus saying right before it was this, this was taken? And I sort of look at, you know, look at the picture, and I'm trying to figure out in the Passover Seder what was going on, you know, and I, I'm just waffling all over the place. And finally, uh, I offered a couple answers, and finally he goes, no, 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 that's not it. Finally he goes, what Jesus said right before this was, everybody that wants into the picture, get on this side of the table. Um, so there's some, there's some problems with, there's some problems with our picture of uh, the Last Supper if we think that this is actually what it looked like. But in fact, um, that's not the biggest issue we've got. I want to suggest that there are, there's a problem with a third picture. And this picture is uh, not one that was ever painted. It's just the picture in your mind about what Christmas is like. And uh, I want to I suggest that our understanding of Christmas, and whether it's a, you know, a nativity scene where uh, you know, there's a halo and everything looks neat and orderly, and, or whether it's some Norman Rockwell image of you know, Christmas 1950s, uh, whatever your image of Christmas is, I want to suggest that it's too safe, too small, and too tame. Because uh, our, our understanding of God is too safe, too small, and too tame. And our understanding of the revolutionary nature of the incarnation and what was happening when, uh, when God became man, we, just, we don't appreciate just how, again, what a, what a bold, revolutionary, daring kind of uh, event this was. So... Um, I want to read just a little bit of this um, of this passage from Luke uh, chapter one that that describes the events immediately after the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah. Right, broke the four hundred years of silence and said, "Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son." Uh, we pick up then Luke chapter one verse twenty six, and there we read that in the sixth month. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, the next thing is just, it it happens every time an angel shows up uh, because, as I have tried to uh, argue, they don't look like pixies. You know, they're not like your fairy godmother uh, happy and kind and wings and fluttering around like Tinkerbell. They are, they are big and so good, right, that they're terrifying. Uh, their power and their purity is just overwhelming. Uh, we, we have a hard time understanding something that's really, really good. Uh, we just have caricatures of it, and it tends to be boring. But real, true goodness, righteousness has an effect on, on those of us who are not uh, to be really overwhelming. And so um, it happens here. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, right? Because, of course, Mary is afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So I want to I argue today that there are 
three different understandings of that passage and sort of all of, of Christmas. And it's important that we get it right. Uh, the first understanding is what I'm going to call the Ken and Barbie view of Christmas. And I actually considered a number of names. Hallmark Christmas, Sesame Street Christmas, Pleasantville Christmas. Uh, you know, you, you, get, you get the idea. Disney Christmas, uh, Mayberry RFD Christmas, Precious Moments Christmas, right? You, you get what I'm going after. In, in fairness... I, sh- I, I dismissed Sesame Street as an, as an option pretty quickly because I, you know, it's been 30 years since I've seen Sesame Street. I don't know what uh, the folks at PBS are doing with Big Bird these days. So, And additionally, uh, there's nothing wrong with having a four-year-old understanding of Christmas uh, if you're four years old. So, you know, there's a place for, for a Sesame Street view of Christmas. But not so with Ken and Barbie or, or uh, Hallmark Christmas, right? Uh, Hallmark has these movies that come out, and they are so sappy and saccharine, and everybody's perfect-looking, and not a hair out of place, and they smile. And Christmas is, you know, with the 2.4 kids around the fireplace, and they're singing, I don't know, the Carpenter's Christmas sto- songs or whatever. And you just look at it, and you go, really? Uh, nobody lives like that. And, and that is a view uh, of, of Christmas where everything is good and perfect and happy and safe and controlled. And, and the problem I have with this Ken and Barbie view of Christmas is that it can lead you to, to be uh, unaware of the opportunities that are in front of you right now because they don't come in that Ken and Barbie kind of way. Life isn't like that. It's far more messy and confusing. And the opportunities aren't sort of earmarked in the way that if you've got this saccharine, icky sweet kind of understanding of what it actually was like, you miss the way God works in this broken world. And we're not the first ones to come up with the Ken and Barbie view of Christmas. In the early church, uh, very, very early, one of the groups argued, they're called Gnostics. And the Gnostics argued that we were saved by secret knowledge. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge, and it gives us the word ology. So biology is the study of life, and anthropology is the study of man, and theology is the study of God. Ology, that word we get from the word gnosis, and it means knowledge. And they thought that we were saved by having knowledge. And uh, and, and there was a group of, of, the, of the Gnostics called the Docetists. And the Docetists, uh, the word dokao in, in Greek means to seem. The Docetists said that Jesus didn't really show up as a man. It just seemed like he did. But, but real life is way too messy and earthy, right? Uh, and, and so it couldn't have happened that way. And, and so they, they argued, they did some sort of Greek thinking mixed in with things. They argued that it just seemed like Jesus showed up, right? So these are the people, right? if, if you've got the Ken and Barbie view, then your understanding of, the, of that first Christmas, if you get the Gnostic view, your understanding of that first Christmas was that the manger didn't smell bad, and the animals all behaved, and Jesus didn't cry, and Mary and Joseph were calm and collected, 
right? And, and Jesus didn't need his diaper changed. No, it's just, oh, it was a little much more sanitized than that. And I'm just here to say, no. That's, that's in fact, not at all what happened. It was, uh, it was very real life. And, uh, and, and by the way, the, this whole idea of having that sort of Ken and Barbie view, everything is perfect and neat, and so neat, in fact, that, that Jesus wasn't a real flesh and blood kind of guy. This was attacked by John. So John is the, the apostle who is younger than all the rest of them, and so he lives longer. And he's writing some of the last things that make it into the New Testament. And he's already had to go on the, uh, the offensive to attack this view. So he opens his uh, letter, not his gospel, but 1 John 1 opens this way. It is a direct attack against this happy Ken and Barbie, saccharine, uh, docetistic view. He writes, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Right? We touched Jesus, the word of life. He wasn't a ghost. It wasn't make-believe. It really happened. Flesh and blood, right? Life, blood, skin, knees, crying, dirty diapers, everything. God entered space in a real person. And, 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 and if you get that, then I, I want you to get that life just isn't, the Christian life just isn't an easy thing to pull off. It's full of all kinds of messy, real life kinds of challenges. Second view that I want to speak against of Christmas is what I'm going to call the college freshman view. So the first book I read when I was a, a graduate student at Trinity, you know, a hundred years ago, back with Martin Luther and, you know, all of that. There was a book out by uh, a German theologian, Helmut Thielicke, and it was called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. And basically, it was just a 50-, 60-page book. Basically, the gist of that book was, when you're a first-year seminary student, um, just shut up. I mean, that was, that was sort of the advice that uh, Thielicke had. He says, you know what? You think you understand things, and you really don't. And you're going to sort of cop an attitude, which is not unlike the attitude that college freshmen have, right? When they come home at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, and suddenly they are enlightened, and they, they want to speak truth to parents about all the crazy, stupid things that we're doing. One of our sons came home and announced that we had way too much food in, uh, in our pantry. And it was all canned goods. I'm like, okay. So he went out and he bought a gunny sack full of rice, which we had sitting there, because that was the way we should buy all our food. You go, okay, you want to buy a gunny sack of rice? There are other things that we'll fight over. Life is going to beat this attitude out of you. I don't have to say anything. Uh, but, but when you cop that kind of I know and no one else knows, um, that, that doesn't work. So Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, classic freshman view, right? It's uh, armed with just a little bit of information. He spins this whole theory. It sells a lot of books, but anybody that's actually been a sophomore could read it and go, oh my goodness, Dan, you sort of should have stayed in class because we could have helped you here. You copped an attitude, and a lot of people do that around Christmas. And they'll say things like, well, look, let's be grown up. 
Right? We know that the wise men couldn't have made it to the manger because it would have taken them months to travel. Okay? I had one guy tell me two years. It would take two years for the wise men to get there. I go, really? Two years? You could walk around the world in less than two years. But, but this idea that you know, the wise men couldn't have been there, okay, uh, the, the text doesn't suggest they're there that night. Our nativity scenes suggest that, but we could alter those. Or they'll say, um, look, we know that uh, Mary wasn't a virgin. The Hebrew word for virgin is actually just a word for young woman. And so, you know, we've got to be enlightened about this. Uh, these people will also say things. Um, uh, they'll have other ideas about, about why Christmas was uh, just not what we thought. The star in the sky, that wasn't really a star. That was just the alignment of Pluto and, and, and Mars and Jupiter. And it happens every so often. It happened in 3 BC. And so there was no star in the sky, right? So you've got these people that, that come out with what I'm going to call the freshman view. And they're going to speak about things with some conviction and passion that they don't fully understand. And there's a whole bit, I mean, this is an industry that will do this. And starting in the 19th century with uh, what we call higher criticism of the Bible coming out of Germany, uh, form and literary criticism and redaction criticism. And people were trying, Schleiermacher and Boltmann and, and others were trying to sort of demythologize the Bible. Right? We've got to take all the, everything supernatural out of it because, of course, we know that couldn't happen. So, um, Okay, you know, the more we learn, everybody's got these theories, and I just want to point out that, that meanwhile, Jesus keeps marching on. And the more we learn uh, about history, the more uh, the Bible actually stands up. And so I, I want to I say that uh, the freshman view is not the right view to have either. I want to suggest a third view, and I called it uh, the biblical view. I don't really like that because the biblical view, I'm sort of playing the trump card. This is the right view. I actually think it's the right view. But it, uh, what I wanted to say is, this is what the Bible actually says. Okay? This, is, this is the history that we're given. And you have to read it to understand because you're, you're missing things most of the time. And when we read it, when we actually study the text, and one of the things we're supposed to do as students of the Bible, is to, to look to understand right, what the original author intended the original reader to understand. Okay, that's, the Bible, we believe, is a, is a unique book, a supernatural book, right? It's a divine book, but it's also a book. And nouns are nouns, and verbs are verbs, and they mean something. And you've got to read them in context to figure out what's going on. And when we do that, we find a story that in spite of the fact that it's 2,000 years old and it happened 5,000 miles away, it rings true. You go, oh, okay, I get how that would have played out. And it's different, I believe, than what many people think. It's far, it's far scarier. It's far more threatening. It's, it's shocking when you really look at what God is doing and what he expects of people. So just two people by way of example. Um, the first one is Joseph. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. It's a, we don't do this. It's something more than engagement, less than marriage. And it could, it could go on for years. Marriages are arranged. So legal documents have been drawn up. There's a, there's a we're going to get married. But it could be five or six years before that marriage was was actually consummated. And so they're betrothed. 
And while they're betrothed, um, Mary turns up pregnant. So 99.999% of the time when this happens, even if Mary says, seriously, it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't do anything, uh, if, the, if, if other people would claim a virginal conception, uh, it's never the case, right? So Joseph just thinks, okay, uh, I'm being played the fool. I've been humiliated by this woman. And uh, so he is, you know, his reputation is sort of sullied. He looks a little bit like he's just, you know, again, he's just being taken advantage of. And all his dreams come crashing down. And then uh, he makes plans. He's just going to sort of walk away from it, right? He's going to quietly divorce her because you had to be divorced because there was already a legal contract established. He's going to quietly divorce her and walk away. And uh, an angel appears to him. And after the angel leaves, Joseph's situation is worse. Seriously. Because now he can't leave. Right? And so now his plans, they're gone. Right? He's, he's got to go stand next to this woman. He's, he's got to go care for her and the son that she is going to give birth to. So, so God's ask of Joseph, right? God's ask of Joseph is threatening, disruptive, his plans go on hold. By the way, for the rest of your life, this is what you're called to do. And this, it's not a nice, neat, little, happy assignment, right? Throw your hopes, dreams, and plans away. God has another plan for you, and it's not at all what you would have expected. That's Joseph's story. Let's think about Mary. I read this passage, and I said, Mary is, uh, you know, she's shocked by this angel. Yeah, that's, it's not just that an angel shows up. You've got to understand what Mary heard. I mean, first of all, Mary, you're going to give birth to a son, right? Not by Joseph, um, but sort of supernaturally. And Mary's got to think, hmm, that's not going to play well with mom and dad. Uh, or anyone else in town, when I show up saying, uh, I'm pregnant, yeah, an angel. Uh, you know, so, so her reputation is, uh, is now, she doesn't know how Joseph's going to respond, but her reputation is now uh, trashed. And then, even more, you've got you to hear this through first century uh, eyes. The angel says, uh, you're going to give birth to a, a child, to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. He'll be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay? Here's the problem. There already is a Son of the Most High. Caesar. He claimed that title. Right? The, the, the Romans deified their emperor, and so when they died, they were understood to become gods. So, when their sons are reigning, now the father dies, the son becomes the next Caesar, right? They're called right, son of God because your father is now a God. So there's already somebody who claims the title son of God who will not be happy to hear that some backwater little peasant girl is claiming that her son is actually the son of God. And it goes on from there. Not just is he going to be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
He's going to be king of the Jews. Oh, wait, there already is a king of the Jews. Herod claims that title. And when his wife sort of appeared to him to uh, sort of threaten his hold on power, he had her killed. When his own sons got uh, of a certain age and he was worried that they might make a claim to be king of the Jews, he had them killed. Right? So, this is, so this is what Mary's hearing. I'm going to give birth to a child. Right? And this child is a, is a direct, in-your-face challenge to Caesar and to Herod. Oh, wonderful. That's going to play really well. And in fact, what happens? We read in Matthew's Gospel, the second chapter, that Herod sends uh, soldiers to kill all the, the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem. Right? Because when the, when the wise men are traveling through, they stop in Jerusalem and they say, hey, we here, uh, we're, we're here looking for the king of the Jews, the child that was just born in fulfillment of the promise. We're here to worship him. And what does Herod say? Oh, fascinating. Well, I would like to worship him too. Please, when you find him, come back and tell me where he is. Right? Because I'm going to have him killed. He doesn't say that. The wise men figure that out. But then we read... In uh, Matthew chapter 2, that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they didn't go back and tell him where they found this baby. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So, what's my point? My point is this. The opportunities to serve and to make a difference, right, they're not easy. They don't show up, gift-wrapped, very clear and neat, and everything falls into place, and everyone's going to thank you for what you're doing. It's not, it just isn't the way it plays out in this broken world. Right? The call to Mary was really the call to be a revolutionary, a guerrilla, an insurrectionist that was going to fight against, uh, against oppressive power. Right? That's what Mary is welcomed into. It's not a hallmark story. Right? It's not a Ken and Barbie story. It's a very difficult, threatening story. That is what God was doing. And I, and I, I say this because I want you to understand that the opportunities that we have are, they don't come, they're not neat. They're, they're not easy. Everything doesn't line up. And so we go, well, I guess I'm supposed to do this because everything is working out and it's so wonderful and so easy. It didn't work out that way for them. Now, please hear. Whenever I give a message like this, give more, right? Give more of your life. Give it away. Serve. Love. Right? Put yourself out for other people. Whenever I give that kind of a message, I want to be very clear. We don't earn God's favor, right? Christianity is not this I do. It's this he did. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. He had promised he was going to send him back in Genesis 3. He'd made all these additional promises about who he was going to be and where he was going to be born and what he was going to do. And Jesus shows up, right, as the God-man. His life didn't begin in the stable. He existed as God before that. He accepts his assignment. He comes down, lives among us, models what life is supposed to be like, teaches, loves, speaks with authority, explains things. Then he dies in our place. And a Christ follower, a Christian, is not somebody who 
does more good than bad. It's not somebody who tries really hard. It's not somebody who keeps all the laws. It's somebody who accepts, right, the, the, the blood of the Lamb of God that, that would, was forecast with the Passover meal all those times. And at the Last Supper, he says, no, it's really about me. It's my body given for you. Uh, I, you know, he is our, our advocate. He is our savior. He's our rescuer. So being a Christ follower is about saying, I'm with Jesus, right? I repent. I get that he's God and I'm not. I'm going to follow him. So Christianity is not this I do. I'm not giving you a bunch of things that you've got to go do or God isn't going to love you. What I'm saying is we get invited to be part of something that is a lot bigger and a lot more daring and a lot more revolutionary than most people get. We've packaged it in a nice, safe, little way, and gee, we can have Christmas specials with Charlie Brown and all the characters, and everything is neat and non-threatening, and that's not what we are called to. We are called to be part of something much bigger. I heard a couple stories. I'll just share um, two of them. One was an eight-year-old boy. I heard this this week. Um, after hearing about Christmas and hearing about God and what God had called him to do, he says to his parents, I want to go to the bank. I want to get my money. And so he's got like $170 in the bank that he's been saving. And uh, he takes all the money out and he has his parents take him to the mall and he buys this winter coat, the warmest winter jacket he can find. And uh, he then takes it over to this kid that he's seen on the playground who doesn't have a winter coat. And uh, he gives him the code, and he says, and here's the $37. That's all I have. Jesus wants me to do this for you. Jesus wants me to give, right? So he just says, okay. I've seen a need. Didn't see an angel. It didn't all work out. It's not easy for me to do. It costs everything I got. But I I see a need. I'm going to give. And uh, Jesus wants me to do this for you. Likewise, high school kid. Um wrestling with the same kind of thing, decides that um, he, needs, he needs to act. He'd been saving money to buy a car, had $1,000. He goes to this restaurant where he knows uh, this single mom is, is working. She's got a number of jobs, and so he goes and uh, he sits in her section. She's a waitress, section of the, of the restaurant, and orders a hot chocolate. Uh, when he's done... He, he pays the 75 cents and leaves on the table an envelope with $1,000 in it, all of his money. Right? He leaves it as a tip. And then he goes and he sort of stands outside the restaurant so he can watch. And when she gets it and she opens it up and she starts crying, he goes running in and he gives her a hug and he says, you know what? Um, God told me that I should be generous and I should give. And uh, I know you're trying and I just wanted to encourage you. Right? I mean, okay. So... The opportunities are all around us. And we can play it safe. We can have a Ken and Barbie Christmas. Or we can be skeptical and say none of this really happened. We can have a college freshman Christmas. Or we can have a historical biblical Christmas, right? Where we can say, okay, right? I'm supposed to be part of this revolutionary force that is bringing love and the values of the kingdom of God to earth. And that's, that's who I serve, and that's what I'm called to. And it's disruptive, but it's, it's an opportunity that I have to do something that will matter uh, in a big way and will matter for eternity. So I want to encourage you, don't have a Ken and Barbie Christmas.
Don't have a college freshman Christmas. Have a biblical Christmas. Have a, have a, a real, historical Christmas. Be part of, of, of the conspiracy of bringing the kingdom of God to earth uh, to the extent that we can. That's the invitation that's given to us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and uh, for the way you have um, given us insight into what, what is and what matters and how we're supposed to live. Forgive us for having a um, sort of sanitized, hallmark 1950s version of Christmas or something else, something other than the, the incarnation, the radical call to be part of something uh, truly revolutionary. Help us, give us eyes to see things differently uh, today and to be generous people uh, in all the ways that you've called us to be generous. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.